Welcome to the Slavic Connection. I'm Lara Turopin, and I'm joined today by Misha. In this time of COVID, we're probably missing travel a little bit, but beforehand, we might have picked up a travel book or two, and we got to actually chat with someone who's worked on those very same travel books. Misha, who did we talk with today? We've talked with Mr. Mark Baker, who is a traveler and a writer based in Prague, Czech Republic. And we talked about his personal experiences of coming to Europe right after the Velvet Revolution of 1989, and also his new book, Chas Promen, Time of Change, which was released in 2021, only in Czech, but it will be translated to English very soon. So I was going up on the train from Vienna. We crossed over from Austria to Czeski Velenica. The train stopped, the soldiers came on, they had the, you know, the same things. They checked the passports. They looked at all the stamps. And at the very end, he handed me the passport. He gave me a mock salute and a big smile. And I realized we're all on the same side again. Yeah, it was a fantastic conversation that definitely gave us the travel bug once again. So sit on down and take a listen. Four, three, two, one. It's not a typical Texas. Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. All right, Mark Baker, welcome to The Slavic Connection. We're very excited to have you on today. Oh, I'm really excited to be here. Any show called The Slavic Connection has me all over it, basically. <laughs> we have a niche. We have a niche. Yes, exactly. So you are, you're a freelance journalist. You're a travel writer. You're an author based in Prague. So before we kind of get into your writing, I kind of wanted to ask about your origin story. Kind of what, what got you started in writing? What brought you to Prague? You know, what, what led to where you are today? Yeah, you know, it all started It all started actually when I was a university student in the early 1980s. Uh, and I took a trip, a road trip. I was based in Luxembourg, took a road trip with some friends across the Iron Curtain on the way to Bulgaria, the seacoast in Bulgaria was our spring break and then back. You know, it kind of, that that's the thing that kind of, I don't know, kind of woke me up to the division, to the very strange Cold War division in Europe got me very interested in it. And then when I returned to the States for a graduate degree, I applied to go to Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. They had a very active Eastern European Institute there. And I became kind of one of the regulars hanging around up there. So in a way, somehow, that's how I got interested in, in Eastern Europe. You know, I grew up in Ohio. I wasn't that interested in Eastern Europe when I was growing up. But, but I, I did, you know, as I got older and went to school, I did. What brought me to Prague, though, after graduated from Columbia, I got a job with a company called Business Eastern Europe or Business International. And uh, Business International had a very small office in Vienna of, from which they covered trade between East and West in the former Eastern, in the Eastern Bloc at the time, the former Eastern Bloc now, and the Soviet Union. And with my background, you know, I got the job in New York City with my background. I kept pushing and pushing. And finally, they relented and sent me over to Vienna in 1986. And then so I was based in Vienna for three or four years until, well, yeah, for four years until the beginning of 91. And then I moved up to Prague at that point. So for me, it was just moving essentially from Vienna to Prague. And so I guess why, why Prague? What made you stay in Prague? Uh, it's a great question. Business International was a business research company. I call myself a journalist working there in Vienna, but what we really did was we did assessments for companies that were interested in investing in, in the Eastern Bloc. In 1989, of course, that completely wrecked that business model. You know, Not because Vienna wasn't interesting, 
for those companies or the companies weren't interested in Eastern Bloc, but because it really split the Bloc into many different countries. So companies, if they wanted to invest in Poland, they wouldn't come to us in Vienna and say, how do we get into Poland? They would go directly to Poland. You know, that, that's what happened. So with that dis- sort of disintegration of our business model, I also thought, how do I, what country do I go to? You know, how do I kind of differentiate myself in a sense? And the company was later purchased by The Economist while I was working there. So The Economist magazine, basically The Economist group, they offered me a job to write a book on product distribution in the new Eastern Europe, on distributing products in the new Eastern Europe. And I went to Budapest, I went to Warsaw, I went to Prague, I went to Bratislava to research the book. And I had covered Prague before from Vienna, and I realized that this was the city that I wanted to be in. It was big enough to be interesting and small enough to be manageable. Okay. Okay. And so from there, you know, we transition into guidebooks, right? right? Like into, into the travel books that you've been writing. So it, it's something that I feel like maybe it's, it's hard for me to grasp. How do, you, how do you get into travel writing? Like, how do you make that transition into, into writing these books for Lonely Planet and Fodors and Fromers? Like, what got you started there? Ah, uh, you know, when I, when I was first contemplating a move up to Prague from Vienna, my girlfriend at the time had a friend in New York. He was an editor for Fodors, just happened to be. And he said to her, do you want to be the first, do you want to write the first guidebook, English language guidebook on Czechoslovakia? And this was in late 1990 when he made the offer. We did the research in 91 and she accepted. And then she turned around and asked me if I didn't want to drive the car, you know, while she was doing it and then co-author it. This was many years before I ever thought about being a travel writer or a guidebook author, you know, but just by sheer coincidence, I'd actually written a guidebook, you know, in 1991, actually. No, you have to really fast forward to um, at the end of what I consider to be my journalism, more serious phase of my career. I worked for The Economist, came up to Prague. I worked for the Prague Post as an editor. I went back to New York. I worked for Bloomberg and I moved to Prague and I worked for Radio Free Europe for many years. And then I got a little bit tired of the nine to five. And then I kind of left that job uh, around 2008 or so, a little more than 10 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. And then I realized I have to find some way to make money. I have to find some way to make a living. And in, in terms of freelance writing, travel writing is one of the few avenues that still pays, I think, because people are willing to pay for good travel advice. So, you know, one thing led to another and I just kind of fell into guidebook writing. So what is that process like writing, writing a guidebook, especially compared to more journalistic style writing? What was that transition like? You know, I always say that travel writing, particularly guidebook writing, is very similar to journalism. Really, it is because it requires many of the same types of skills. You know, what makes a good journalist? A good journalist, you know, is to somebody who really understands the background of a story, who goes into a destination and has a very good nose you know, they say a nose for news, you know, so they really get in there and they, re- they can really identify, you know, what the story is very quickly. A travel writer is supposed to have very good background information about a destination, supposed to really know it very well. But when they get on site, they are very quick at picking up, you know, what are the new things going on? What are the new clubs? What are the new restaurants? What are the new hotels? What are the new attractions, you know, in a destination? And there are many ways in which travel writing and journalism sort of play off of each other. A lot of people think that they're not that close, but in fact, they're very similar. 
And, you know, most people in the United States, when they think of traveling to Europe, they think of Western Europe, places like France, Germany, Belgium, the United Kingdom. Right. They don't think of traveling to the former Eastern Bloc countries. So you, you've kind of opened that a new region for them, sort of like Christopher Columbus did in 1492. <laughs> and so how did that feel to be one of the few first people who had the courage to go to the newly in independent states and explore that region for the Americans and tell them, you really need to go to those countries. Forget about Paris, forget about London or Madrid. You know, that's a great question. Uh, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the days before 1989 in the travel sphere in which a map of Europe would have the countries to the west of the Iron Curtain. Germany, Italy, France, Spain, etc., completely delineated, well marked out, etc. And then you would go across that line, you know, through Germany, Czechoslovakia, blah, blah, blah. And it would just be a splotch of red, you know, like they didn't even have their own names somehow, you know, like because they were so far off the beaten trail. You know, if you would say in those days, if you would say a word like Prague or Budapest, it sounded like you were talking like a John Le Carre spy novel or something like that. Not a place where you would go on holiday to get tourists to go across the old Iron Curtain. It took a long time, I would say, not a long time, but it took several years in the 90s, early 90s to get people accustomed to these strange, you know, languages in quotes, all those hot checks and charkas, uh, you know, that Slavic languages have. Hungarian, of course, is completely incomprehensible. Cyrillic script is unreadable for most people. So it took a little bit of time, but then somehow the word caught on. Prague is beautiful. Krakow is so interesting. Budapest is fantastic. Blah, blah, blah. You know, someday it will happen for Moldova, you know, and some other countries. It already is happening to a certain extent. And then I didn't need to do anything. As soon as people started to think, ah, this is the undiscovered Europe, this is the Europe they'd never told us about, pretty soon the demand for Eastern Europe started to exceed the demand for Western Europe. And, you know, it's crazily incredible as it sounds. In 2019, Prague was, I think, number four or number five most popular destination in Europe, which was crazy. 19th most popular destination in the world and the fourth on the European continent behind like London, Rome. Paris, something, you know, so the word now is out on Eastern Europe and people are coming here. Having already done the job of traveling all over Eastern Europe, what is Mark Baker's top five list of, of cities slash beautiful spots to travel in Eastern Europe for an American tourist? <laughs> Fantastic question. I, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit blinkered because Lonely Planet usually only sends me to a few countries. You know, like you know, obviously I'm just one person, you know, and they have a lot of writers and this is a popular part of the world to write about. So, you know, they use a lot of different writers, but they send me mostly to of course Prague and the Czech Republic, to Poland, Slovenia, Lithuania, a little bit to Russia. Romania, Bulgaria, and Hungary. Those are the countries that I normally write about. So when I usually come up with a top five list, it's, you know, it confuses people. It's like top five. I mean, that doesn't sound like a top 100 list or a top 1,000 list, you know? But I think for countries, I don't think you can beat Slovenia. It's a beautiful country. It's very easy to negotiate. It's got beautiful cities. It's got the mountains and it's got a beautiful green landscape. It's just, it's just gorgeous. But I think Vienna's got to be in that list right there. Certainly Krakow is in that list. Romania's got some wonderful small cities like Brasov, 
Sigishwara in Transylvania, that's got to be on that list. You know, if you like wine, you know, this won't come as a shock to one of the hosts, but if you like wine, Moldova is probably, you know, as good as France or Italy. I mean, the quality is fantastic. So, and I'm not doing that just because I'm a guest on your podcast. It really is true. So that would be my kind of like my list. I mean, you know, I have a lot of different places to go, but I like places like my readers like places. I like places where people you didn't know about before you read about it. And now you want to see it. Well, in in that vein, too, you know, as you visit these countries and you pick up these experiences and there's a personal touch to it as well of deciding what what goes into a book, what doesn't go into a book. And travel guides are known for, you know, having these local secrets, hidden gems that are included. How how do you find those details and those places, those things to do? How do you decide what goes into a travel guidebook? You know, the first step, and this is another place where travel writing and journalism are very similar. A travel writer is really an agent of the reader in the same way that a reporter is an agent of the reader. So when I'm researching a destination, I always try to put myself in the place of the person who's going to be reading my guide and ask myself, where do they, where would they want to go? What would, what's, their, what's their level of expertise on this destination? What's their interest level on this destination? What would they want to do when they get here and try to anticipate some of the needs like that? So that's the very first step to finding one of these hidden gems. You know, you really have to know who you're writing this thing for. And then the, the actual way that you find the hidden gems is like being a good reporter. You ask around, keep your eyes open, you walk around, you see where people are going. You know, you, you ask really dumb questions to the reception desk at the hotel, like what kind of people stay here, you know, blah, blah, blah. Can I see a room? That kind of on the ground research. And how long, how long does that kind of research usually take? Because, you know, ideally it takes, oh, I have to be in this country for five years to get, sorry, I'm very busy on this assignment. It's going to take me a while. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you really have to worry about your budget in a sense, because, you know, if, if you're going to make it work financially, you can't spend months in a destination, unfortunately. I mean, that's the, that's the reality of the situation. So for a country like Romania, medium-sized country, 20 million people, relatively large landmass, you know, don't want to insult any Romanian readers but they, or listeners, but they're going to know this to be fact as well. The roads are terrible and the, the rail network is terrible. So it takes a long time to get from place to place, you know, a whole day to cross the country or even longer. So a publisher would normally assign two or three, usually three writers to a country the size of Romania. And so I would do one third of the country. I might be Bucharest and two regions, something like that. And for that, I would budget four to six weeks of research time. So about a month month and a half, something like that. Before you go to a country, do you read books about it? Do you try to study the language? Do you try to meet with immigrants from that country in the United States or wherever you're based? Try to get like a sense of it before you go and then compare it and try to build on that? Obviously, I read, although I'm, I'm careful when I read, but I read the competing guidebooks, of course, to see where other people have gone. You know, but it's dangerous, of course, to read a competitor because I don't want to parrot any of the phraseology back in my own guidebook. Like somehow it gets lodged in your brain and it comes out as an original thought, but in fact, it was something that I read somewhere else. So you have to be really careful about that. You certainly don't want to be plagiarizing anybody or, or being, you know, seen to be plagiarizing, even if you're not doing it intentionally. What you would do is, of course, you read all you can about the, the destination. You might write 
to the destination marketing organization, the state or the city tourist board. I find social media to be extremely helpful now. You know, I follow people on Twitter or on Instagram, and Instagram is very helpful for travel writers, of course, because it really helps you to locate where people are traveling to in a destination, what they're doing, etc. You don't want to slavishly follow Instagram because that would be, I, I think, you know, the death of your guidebook because you wouldn't discover new things somehow. You want to up, you stand apart from that, but it can certainly help you to see where people like to go, you know, where, the, where many people are going. And sometimes I reach out on Facebook, you know, I mean, if I meet somebody at a party or something like that, boom, a friend request the next day, you know, tell me something a little bit about Bucharest, tell me something a little bit about Slovakia, you know, that I might not know, you know, that kind of thing. People are generally very helpful. So it sounds like the the writing process has changed a little bit since you first started out now with the inundation of social media and being able to almost research through other users as well, what where they're going, what they're doing. There's a lot more information out there. Is that easier, harder, just different? It's both. It's easier to get it right, researching a destination, because in the past, you could, you know, basically research blindly, think you know everything about a destination, come back home with all your research notes from your road trip and realize that you missed something big. You know, that's happened a couple of times, you know, not necessarily big, but I mean, something that is important. Now, the, you know, the chance that you're going to do that is much less. You know, I have a very good idea when I go into a place where people are going. TripAdvisor, for instance, will tell you a lot about where people like to eat. Of course, you can't rely on TripAdvisor either. You know, you have to do your own independent research. You have to find things that are not there. So in that respect, it's easier, but it's also more difficult because you're competing with so many different pieces, sources of information. So, you know, it feels more frenetic now to, you know, when I come back. And of course, the research phase is also much more technological. You know, in the very first days when I started guidebook writing, we would come back with our notes, type up our notes in a Word document and send the Word document to the, uh, to the editors or to the publishing house. Now you come back with your notes and you open up an, uh, sort of an in-company data field a lot of it is data entry. You create spaces for POIs, which are places of interest, or points of interest, and you fill in the fields, etc. So it's much more technologically driven than it was, the whole process. Mark, I wanted to pivot a little bit actually back to you in that you've been writing travel books, you've been uh, publishing blogs on your website as well, but you've also had a memoir published. Right. So what was that process like, like making that switch to kind of a longer version of storytelling? Really good question. Let me think about that. Yeah. Look, in my professional writing, I've been a journalist. I've written for magazines. I worked at a radio station. I worked for newspapers. But that's very perishable. You know, that's very short in a sense. You know, you're really writing for that day or that week or, you know, maybe that month. But what I had to realize is that for the book, which I published this year, I was going to have to make a more, I hate to use the word profound because it sounds ridiculous, but I had to try to make a pro more profound understanding of the period that I was covering. I, I, re I did not want, I, and I couldn't write something that was newsy, you know, something that was going to get stale. I really had to try to look back and summarize my experiences and to express them in a deeper way, you know, in a way that, that, that lent meaning, even though as I was going through them, I wasn't really aware of what that meaning was. So I had to look back and to try to really understand the, the whole thing that I was going through, and, you know, in order to make a coherent 
narrative. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, your new book, Chas Perlman? Because unfortunately, it's not published in English yet. So our listeners, we can't we can't read it yet, uh, Mark. <laughs> okay. Ooh, sorry about that. We're going to issue it in English very soon, I think. Or not re- very soon, but definitely in the coming months. The, the book is called Chas Promyen. It's written in Czech, and it means time of transformation or time of changes. And the book is set in the 1980s to the 1990s. This is the period, the time of changes that the title refers to. The very first story begins in 1982 with my first trip to Eastern Europe. And the book ends in 1994 after I had moved to Prague, had set up a business in Prague, a bookstore and a coffee house called The Globe, and then somehow decided that I had to leave Eastern Europe if I was going to try to be a serious journalist again or try to become one. So anyway, it's a 10-year period. The first Part of the book is set in the 1980s leading up to the 1989 revolutions in Eastern Europe. Then one chapter on 1989, it's called The Year That That Changed Everything. And it's really January to December description of the revolutions of 1989, beginning with the elections in Poland, with the Hungarian prime minister cutting down the barbed wire with Austria. Then the long summer of 1989, when the world was really wondering which way Gorbachev was going to go, the hardliners or the reformers, and then heating up for the fireworks of the fall with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Velvet Revolution, and then ending on Christmas Day uh, near Bucharest in a military garrison where Nikolai Ceausescu and his wife uh, were uh, executed by firing squad. That's the year 1989. And then the second half of the book starts up in 1990. When I moved to Prague in 1991, when I worked at the Prague Post, the dissolution of Czechoslovakia, you know, the separation of the Czech and Slovak republics, and then the the founding of the Globe Bookstore and Coffee House, which is sort of for me like a culmination of the travel of that of that transformation period. I actually would love to get more into details about this bookstore that you opened because you've written about it a little bit on your blog that I've read, which right. seemed like an entire experience of not having a lot of experience in running a bookstore in a coffee shop, ordering the books, like dealing with even having the building. What, what was that all like? Right. You know, there was a great, I, I write about it in my book, a little bit on my blog. There was a wave of expats who came to Prague in the early 1990s, started around 91, 92. And, you know, at one point or another, it might have numbered into the tens of thousands of foreigners just hanging around. And that was kind of like the order of the day. Everybody was an amateur at everything. Even Czechs and Slovaks and Poles, Bulgarians, Romanians, they were all amateurs at running businesses. You know, nobody really had much experience unless you were you know, a functionary in the party or something like that of running a a company. So everybody was learning, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. No, for us with the Globe, it was a joke. Somehow we were learning something new every day about running a business, you know, just first about, I don't know, paying, paying our taxes, you know, paying our employee taxes, ordering books, shelving books. How do you price books? What, what does the, uh, you know, do do English, is there a market for English books in Prague? Then what about coffee, ordering food? How do you hire staff? I mean, it's it's a complicated enterprise. You know, even something as simple as a bookstore coffee house takes a lot of thinking. And would you say it was difficult for you to establish yourself, open a coffee house as, as an American? Were people friendly to you or not so much? Because still some Czechoslovakians or Czech people were harboring communist thoughts and anti-American sentiment was still pretty high. Yes, that's exactly the same question that my own publisher asked me to write to, to address when I was writing the book. Uh, people are very people are very curious about how it was for foreigners in the early 1990s in Prague. 
but you have to look at it. You have to expand the scope just a little bit because 1989 was huge change, opened up the country to all kinds of things, opened up the entire region to all kinds of things. For the first several years, people were very open, mostly to people coming in. You know, it was seen as part of the deal. The more foreigners living here would be, you know, would guarantee somehow that the changes would last, that we wouldn't go back to the old ways somehow. So I think there was a general positive feeling for foreigners coming to Czechoslovakia back then, and as far as well as many of the other countries in Eastern Europe. I wouldn't say that that was universal for sure. There was always going to be a fringe element. There was not just a kind of a retrograde communist uh, holdovers, but there was also the emergence, even back then in the early 1990s, of, of, of fringe right-wing populist parties. You know, Czechoslovakia had its version of that. There were those same sort of parties all across Eastern Europe. They were not excited about foreigners coming to the country, of course, but that was relatively low grade. It only became a mass populist movement in several stages. The first one, of course, was 9-11, you know, attacks of 2001, where Islam itself became seen as sort of an enemy faith for some people all around the world, not just in Eastern Europe. And people, you know, started to see Islam in a completely different way, were very regrettable. And then the Syrian civil war, which brought many, many migrants into Europe, into the European Union. And there was that feeling in 2014, 2015, and even in 2016, that the European Union had lost control of its borders. And that terrified people. Of course, that very regrettable set of circumstances helped to give rise to this generation of populist leaders that we have in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, and to a certain degree across the continent of Europe. I mean, that goes way beyond the scope of your question. But just for your listeners who might be thinking, well, you know, these Central Europeans don't seem to be very friendly with foreigners. That's really a more modern phenomenon to a certain extent, you know, that in the early 1990s, I never felt unwelcome as a foreigner here at all. Never. In one of your blogs, you talk about how different the publishing process is in the United States versus Czech Republic for a book and how you went into the after-publishing process and, and dealing with the bookstores. And could you describe maybe, is your book popular among the Czech people? Do they want to see American foreign, foreigners' perspective on the most tumultuous and interesting years of their history? Or it's mostly for the expat community in Czech Republic who want to see somebody like you write about things from 30 years ago? You know, it's a it's a little bit it's a little bit of both. But I wrote the book for Czech readers in mind because, for one thing, it's written in Czech and also Slovaks because you know Slovaks are accustomed more accustomed to buying and reading books in Czech than Czechs are accustomed to write, reading and, and buying books in Slovak. So I really tried to orient the narrative toward what I thought my readers would be interested in. You know, I didn't want the book about me, and I certainly didn't want the book about the generation of Americans and Brits and Canadians, whatever, who came to Prague in the 1990s and started businesses. I thought that that would be a little bit boring and not very interesting for them. But what I wanted to show them was how we reacted to their society somehow, how we saw the things that everybody saw to give people a view of a very familiar story. Even the Velvet Revolution for people here is a very familiar story. Everybody knows what happened on this date, what happened on this date. I mean, of a certain age, maybe not for really younger people. But people don't know how we looked at it abroad. 
you know, or how I looked at it as a reporter going there and who I was, you know, interacting with and, you know, what, what we thought about the revolutions, because I can tell you that we didn't know they were coming in 1989. None, none of us did. I mean, it was a total surprise. And I, I was supposed to be a paid expert looking at the Eastern Europe every day and thinking what's going to happen. But I, nobody could have foreseen those things. They were shocking. So I wanted to make sure that people understood that, you know, and I, that's what was so satisfying about writing the book. And maybe gets back to Lara's question a little bit earlier is that, um, you know, I had so many notes, so many thoughts, so many photos, so many diary entries that, that I had to find an outlet for, you know, had to, you know, and, and I thought that that outlet might be interesting to people who live here or live through those changes. And so that's what the book really is. It's this translation of those old thoughts and notes into, into some sort of different type of, of, of viewpoint of, of, of what happened. And then to try to see the lens of what happened in 1989 from 2021. Now, I, now I've lost a little bit of track. I went on so, so long. No, you, you've answered everything. That the book is for Czech readers and even Slovak readers. And that they, they appreciate your angle on this topic, which is very important for them. But do you feel like, like the Czechs want to move from that? Because everybody knows about the Velvet Revolution and how it happened about Václav Gavel and all of those changes. Do you feel like they want to move away from those things or they still cherish them and it's like symbols for them, even for younger generations, or it's kind of fading away now. No, no, no. I think I think it's just getting interesting now because for many years afterward, people took the 1989 changes for granted, even to a certain extent. Even to a certain extent, I, I had this feeling in the early 90s with my Czech friends that they were even uncomfortable using the word revolution, because revolution for those for people in this part of the world means Bolshevik revolution or February revolution. It's a very uncomfortable word. But over now, over the years, that attitude has softened. People are very proud of the Velvet Revolution. And you have to keep in mind, these changes were more than 30 years ago now. The revolution, much of the revolution was carried out by students who were in their early 20s. That means that they're in their 50s now, those people. They have children of their own, adult children, and, and many times they have grandchildren. So they're in the process of passing down that knowledge of what happened, what those changes were. And I think to a certain extent, all those, all those changes are getting another look, a fresh look. You know, that was the idea behind my book. In fact, it was the idea of my publisher. It wasn't even my idea to write this book. The publisher came to me and asked me to write the book. He had seen uh, my editor at, at Albatross, which is my publisher, had seen some blog posts and said, why don't you write some of these stories up for our readers, not in English, but in Czech? Because that was around the 30th anniversary of the uh, Velvet Revolution, all the revolutions. So 2019, the fall of 2019. And there seemed to be a generational handover of that memory. And this book, this book would be then part of that generational handover. Or that was the hope. I started thinking about the, the process of getting this book in English, because clearly, you know, you had this audience that's they're from the Czech Republic. They're, they're knowledgeable about the story. But uh, Misha, I have to disagree. Not everyone knows about the Velvet Revolution. <laughs> it's not something that's told very often, at least in the United States. And so I, I see that there's going to be a bit of a challenge for you to kind of transition it to a, another audience. And at the same time, I think you're going to provide a very fantastic like lens to look through this country with, again, because so many people may not be as familiar with the Czech Republic and what happened there in 89. Yeah. Well, you know, the book is not just about Czechoslovakia. You know, I mean, I, I tried, I tried to broaden the focus, but you're right. 
it will it, I'll have to refocus it a little bit. I'll have to add some explainers. I'll have to position the events to be relevant to my readers, which will be different from the readers which I wrote this book for. Uh, hopefully, I won't have to rewrite the whole thing. You know, that would be that would be a lot. But you know, to kind of like push it around, push the text around a little bit so that it's more easily digestible. But just for your readers here, Chesperman is written in Czech, and it's a, a lot about the Czechoslo- about Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic. But the book begins in Poland, you know, because for us at Columbia in the 1980s as students, that was the most interesting country. You know, we were looking at solidarity, we were looking at Lekwuenza. You know, Czechoslovakia was, by comparison, relatively boring. It was simply a vassal state of Moscow, you know, and, and the big things that were happening in Eastern Europe, the real revolutionary things, you know, if I can use that word, were happening in Poland. And so my first trip to the region wasn't to come to Prague, it was to go to Krakow. You know, I had a, a roommate at Columbia who was studying Polish there at Jagiellonian, like many people do. And I was going to hang out with him and have a blast. And we we're going to learn about solidarity together and meet some dissidents and have a good time, you know, like the American grad student, the thing. And then at, the, at that moment, we were hanging around. We said, why don't we just go to Prague? We're so close. It's so cool. So it's supposed to be such a beautiful place. And that was my first trip to Prague. It was almost like an accident, really. You know, the first story I tell in the book, the second story, actually, um, but the first story about, uh, you know, uh, 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 like this and, uh, is a story that Matt and I, that was my roommate at Columbia, we came down to Prague and we went to the room finding service, which was just another branch of the interior ministry, basically, because they wanted to look at our passports and they wanted to make sure that we were in hotels that were approved of for use by tourists and all that stuff. So, um, you know, uh, we were walking around after we got our room at the room finding service. Uh, I was tired. I wanted to go back to the hotel. He wanted to walk around. Prague, so we split up. And that's the last time I saw him for three days. That was it. You lost we him. He disappeared. I lost him. In fact, it's called the case of the missing roommate. And that was that was so weird. That was the weird thing about Prague. It's like I, I had known about its reputation for strangeness, you know, Golem and uh, Franz Kafka and, you know, Rudolph II and all that stuff. It's all about witchcraft and alchemy and all that. But, you know, Prague on this visit really lived up to its reputation for weirdness you know on that trip and it kind of hooked me you know asked me why i chose prague in a sense is because i was still kind of stung by that missing roommate thing you know and i really wanted to figure out what this city is Well, I really appreciate the the way you tell stories through your own eyes, through your own lens. There's a lot of, you know, personal that goes into it, which is funny for your about me. It's quite short. You know, it's just, you know, this is what I do. But there's so much of you and all of your stories and all of your experiences and putting yourself out there. Is, is it is it difficult for you to kind of like put your own personal stories to that kind of written word or does it come more easily? You know, I'm not a trained historian. You know, and that's what I first realized when I got the when I got the contract, when I got the when I signed the, the agreement to write Chas Promien. The first thing I realized is that I'm not a qualified historian. I can't write a history of the Velvet Revolution or of the changes. So I have to really stick to what I know. You know, and I do know my own personal stories. I do know how I felt, and I do know some of the background of what I you know against which I was experiencing this. And so I realized that uh, in order to make the book legit, you know, I had to have to stick to that frame. You know, that's the, really the only way that I could have written this story, this, the book. So, I, you know, I'm really happy that you feel like um, it's interesting to see it through that personal lens, because that's really what I was aiming for. You know, I tell people 
you know, don't expect a dry history or any history or even a non, non dry history. Expect more of a entertaining personal view, you know, personal ride through this time through a person who really was learning on the spot, came to the region quite naive, you know, very naive actually, and, you know, even left, you know, naive, but whatever, learned a lot, learned a little at least through that period. So do you have any, you know, favorite stories that got included in the book or maybe something that got left out? What, what's kind of like a highlight from, from those years for you? I'll tell you a couple different stories. One is kind of a, a chapter. It's not really a story, but I'll, I'll give you the, the background of it and, and might whet your appetite for, for what, what's to come. When I was working at Business International in Vienna as a journalist in the 1980s, my check was terrible. I got the job by luck, you know, not by my background. You know, um, I spoke pretty good German. I had a little bit of Polish, but they didn't have very much Czech. But they, when I got there because of office politics, they moved me into the Czechoslovak expert, basically. So in order for me to function in Prague, when I would go up to here, when I would come here on my research trips, trips, of course, I would need a translator and a fixer. You know, somebody would help me with Czech, somebody who helped me with my meetings, somebody who would uh, interpret for me find my hotels, do a lot of different things, you know, which was not unusual at the time. Of course, every journalist, Western journalist used a fixer. You know, I think it was even mandatory. But my fixer later turned up on those lists of secret police collaborators. You know, I didn't learn this until 2012 or 2013, something like that. And uh, just Googling his name by chance, I wonder what happened to Arnold. That was his name, actually. I wonder what happened to my old buddy, Arnold. So I'm Googling all of, all of the ways. Of course, I can't find anything. He's completely scrubbed out until I scroll down on Google and I find one small report written by the Prague Military Institute, Military History Institute here about my fixer, identifying him very clearly as an informant for the STB, you know, which was the security police. And suddenly everything fell into place. Everything, all the meetings, all this, why this happened, why that happened. And so that helped me you know, to go back into the book and tell the, the stories about, you know, these different things. I mean, you know, I later learned that the Czechoslovak government was completely convinced that Business International was a cell front operation for the Central Intelligence Agency or MI6, that I was a very active, rather an inexperienced agent. You know, of course, I knew almost nothing about the country. So perhaps the least informed agent you could possibly have imagined. So that's the bigger story, but like I'll just share one little story that that kind of gets at the chest, the the time of transformation thing. You know, when I was a journalist in Vienna, traveling up to Prague several, you know, many times over the over the years, the four or five years I was doing that, I would always take the same rail line. Would go, it would start from Vienna, it would go up through Austria, going toward the northwest. It would cross at a very small border crossing in, in the Czech in Czechoslovakia called Chesky Velenica. And then from Chesky Velenica, the train would continue up to Prague. It took about five, six hours, something like that. It was always very fraught crossing the borders in trains. You know, I'm sure you know the stories. You know, the dogs, the, the guns, the, the soldiers, you know, the, the anything could go wrong. They scour the visa. If, if all your stamps aren't, in, aren't correct, you're going back to where you came from. So it was always a lot of, you know, it's a little bit of nervousness to approach the border. My first trip after 1989 was in February of 1990. So two months after 1989, too soon for big changes at the border. Of course, these things take years to implement. So I was going up on the train from Vienna. We crossed over from Austria. We, we got to Chesky Velenica. The train stopped. The soldiers came on. They had, the, you know, the same things. They checked the passports. They looked at all the stamps. 
And at the very end, he handed me the passport. He gave me a mock salute and a big smile. And I realized we're all on the same side again, suddenly. So that was just a little thing to tell me that, you know, whatever, 40 years of being, you know, mortal enemies across the Iron Curtain had been erased in a sense. I had this question about your friend Arnold. Do you want to see him once again? And like, I just don't know. It's very strange when you realize so many years after you've been with somebody that they are actually not on your side. It was it was a real slap in the face for me, you know, because of course, you know, I was naive, but not that naive. I had an idea that there would be agents on the other side, especially if they suspected that we were agents. Of course, it would be like that kind of thing. But it was still a surprise. I didn't realize how how high ranking the guy really was in the in in, in the secret service here in Czechoslovakia. But he, he passed away in 2001, so you know there's no chance of meeting him anywhere on the street. When I was writing up my book, it was a real challenge for me in that chapter with Arnold because, of course, I was angry with him, but I was also angry at my own company for sending me into that situation. I was angry at myself for being so you know naive. And then I started to think about Arnold as a kind of stand-in for many people of his generation, not just in Czechoslovakia, but everywhere in Eastern Europe, who had to do many of the same types of compromises in order to get by in the society. And that's what he was doing, just at a, at a higher level than most people. I, I can't say I hate the man. If he came into the room right now, we'd probably have a good laugh, you know, about all that stuff. You know, nothing happened to me in the end. And I don't think anything happened to him in the end. So, you know, no harm, no foul on a certain level. I don't think he's going to come in. Oh, hey, Arnold. How you doing? Hey, sit down. <laughs> Just wrapping up the interview. I'll be right with you. Okay. Have a, have a get a coffee. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to note that on markbakerprog.com, there is a couple of chapters from Chas Proman and also a lot of very interesting stories and tales from Eastern Europe, as well as the selection of Mark Baker's guidebooks, which are amazing from what I've looked at. Wow, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I would personally recommend the Mexican jumping bean story. That was oh, a personal no. favorite for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, that was Bloomberg, you know? I mean, and that was the, that was the world that I thought that I wanted to enter after Prague. You know, that that was the world of serious journalism, you know, as opposed to the funny monkeying around at the globe. I mean, you've had all the aspects of life now at this point. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, looking ahead, do you have anything that you're working on? Anything coming down the pipeline? I'm really working on trying to get the English version of, of Time of Changes or Chas Proman ready, you know, so, it, you know, that. And then I'm going to the blog, you know, trying to update the blog. I'm going to try to reposition the blog away from history now and Eastern Europe back toward travel the way it, you know, was supposed to be in, in the beginning. For the moment, I'm really going to focus on the book and see what I can do. You know, we'll see what, what comes next. We will definitely have to keep an eye out for that. And in the meantime, we'll definitely keep reading your blog and enjoying the stories well, that you, you have to tell. So thank you so much for putting that out there. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, it was totally my pleasure. Thank you. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. 
don't know if I should sit on down. It feels so commanding. Sit down. Sit down! Listen to this episode. I ought to slug you. Take it easy when you talk to me, okay? <laughs>